Section 16 of Once a Week by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Men Who Succeed, Part 2. The Doctor. His slippered feet stretched out luxuriously to the fire. Dr. Venables of Mudford lay back in his armchair and gave himself up to the delights of his Flor di Caballo, number two a box of which had been presented to him by an apparently grateful patient. It had been a busy day. He had prescribed more than a half a dozen hot milk puddings and a dozen changes of air. He had promised a score of times to look in again tomorrow, and the widow Nixie had told him yet again, but at greater length than before, her private opinion of doctors. Sometimes Gordon Venables wondered whether it was only for this that he had been the most notable student of his year at St. Bartholomew's. His brilliance, indeed, had caused something of a sensation in medical circles, and a remarkable career had been prophesied for him. It was Venables who had broken up one suffrage meeting after another by throwing white mice at the women on the platform, who, day after day, had paraded London dressed in the costume of a brown dog until arrested for biting an anti-vivisector in the leg. No wonder that all the prizes of the profession were announced to be within his grasp, and that when he buried himself in the little country town of Mudford, he was thought to have thrown away recklessly opportunities such as were granted to few. He had been in Mudford for five years now. An occasional paper in The Lancet on the recurrence of anthrophilomelitis in earthworms kept him in touch with modern medical thought, but he could not help feeling that, to some extent, his powers were rusting in Mudford. As the years went on, his chance of Harley Street dwindled. "'Come in,' he said in answer to a knock at the door. The housekeeper's head appeared. "'There's been an accident, sir,' she gasped. "'Gentlemen, run over.' He snatched up his stethoscope and, without even waiting to inquire where the accident was, hurried into the night. Something whispered to him that his chance had come. After a quarter of an hour, he stopped a small boy. "'Hello, Johnny,' he said breathlessly. "'Where's the accident?' The boy looked at him with open mouth for some moments, then he had an idea. Why, it's the doctor, he said. Dr. Venables pushed him over and ran on. It was in the high street that the accident had happened. Lord Lair, an eccentric old gentleman who had sometimes walked when he might have driven, had, while dodging a motor car, been run into by a child's hoop. He lay now on the pavement, surrounded by a large and interested crowd. "'Look out!' shouted somebody from the outskirts. "'Here comes doctor!' Dr. Venables pushed his way through to his patient. His long search for the scene of the accident had exhausted him bodily, but his mind was as clear as ever. "'Stand back there,' he said in an authoritative voice. Then, taking out his stethoscope, he made a rapid examination of his patient. "'Incised wound in the tibia,' he murmured to himself, Slight abrasion of the patella and contusion of the left ankle. The injuries are serious, but not necessarily mortal. Who is he? 
The butcher, who had been sitting on the head of the fallen man, got up and disclosed the features of Lord Lair. Dr. Venables staggered back. "'His lordship!' he cried. "'He is a patient of Dr. Scott's. "'I have attended the client of another practitioner. "'Professionally, I am ruined.' "'Lord Lair, who was now breathing more easily, opened his eyes. "'Take me home,' he groaned. "'Dr. Venable's situation was a terrible one. "'Medical etiquette demanded his immediate retirement from the case.' But the promptings of humanity and the thought of his client's important position in the world were too strong for him. Throwing his scruples to the winds, he assisted the aged peer onto a hastily improvised stretcher and accompanied him to the hall. His lordship once in bed, the doctor examined him again. It was obvious immediately that there was only one hope of saving the patient's life. An injection of anthrophilomelitis must be given without loss of time. Dr. Venables took off his coat and rolled up his sleeves. He never traveled without a small bottle of this serum in his waistcoat pocket, a serum which, as my readers know, is prepared from the earthworm, in whose body, fortunately, large deposits of anthrophilomelitis are continually found. With help from a footman in holding down the patient, the injection was made. In less than a year, Lord Lear was restored to health. Dr. Gordon Venable's case came before the British Medical Council early in October. The counts in his indictment were two. The first was that, On the 17th of June last, Dr. Gordon Venables did feloniously and with malice aforethought commit the disgusting and infamous crime of attending professionally the client of another practitioner. The second was that, in the course of rendering professional services to the said client, Dr. Venables did knowingly and wittingly employ the assistance of one who was not a properly registered medical man, to wit, Thomas Boiling, footman, thereby showing himself to be a scurvy fellow of infamous morals. Dr. Venables decided to apologize. He also decided to send in an account to Lord Lair for 250 guineas. He justified this to himself, mainly on the ground that, according to a letter in that week's Lancet, the supply of anthrophilomelitis in earthworms was suddenly giving out and that it was necessary to recoup himself for the generous quantity he had injected into Lord Lair. Naturally also, he felt that his lordship, as the author of the whole trouble, owed him something. The council, in consideration of his apology, dismissed the first count. On the second count, however, they struck him off the register. It was a terrible position for a young doctor to be in, but Gordon Venables faced it like a man. With Lord Lair's fee in his pocket, he came to town and took a house in Harley Street. When he had paid the first quarter's rent and the first installment on the hired furniture, he had fifty pounds left. Ten pounds he spent on embossed stationery. Forty pounds he spent on postage stamps. For the next three months, 
No journal was complete without a letter from 999 Harley Street, signed Gordon Venables, in which the iniquity of his treatment by the British Medical Council was dwelt upon with the fervor of a man who knew his subject thoroughly. No such letter was complete without a side reference to anthrophilomelitis, as found, happily, in earthworms, and the anthrophilomelitis treatment, as recommended by peers. Six months previously, the name of Venables had been utterly unknown to the man in the street. In three months' time, it was better known even than blanks, the well-known blank. One half of London said he was an infamous quack. The other half of London said he was a martyred genius. Both halves agreed that, after all, one might as well try this new, what you may call it, treatment, just to see if there was anything in it, don't you know? It was only last week that Mr. Venables made an excellent speech against the supertax. THE NEWSPAPER PROPRIETOR The great Hector Strong, lord of journalism and swear of empires, paced the floor of his luxurious apartment with bowed head, his corrugated countenance furrowed with lines of anxiety. He had just returned from a lunch with all his favorite advertisers, but it was not this which troubled him. He was thinking out a new policy for the daily vein. Suddenly he remembered something. Coming up to town in his third motor, he had glanced through the nineteen periodicals which his house had published that morning, and in one case had noted matter for serious criticism. This was obviously the first business he must deal with. He seated himself at his desk and pushed the bell marked 38. Instantly a footman presented himself with a tray of sandwiches. "'What do you want?' said Strong coldly. "'You rang for me, sir,' replied the trembling menial. "'Go away,' said Strong. Recognizing magnanimously, however, that the mistake was his own, he pressed bell twenty-eight. In another moment the editor of Sloppy Chunks was before him. "'In today's number,' said Strong, as he toyed with a blue pencil, you apologized for a mistake in last week's number. He waited sternly. It was a very bad mistake, sir, I'm afraid. We did a great injustice to... You know my rule, said Strong. The mistake of last week I could have overlooked. The apology of this week is a more serious matter. You will ask for a month's salary on your way out. He pressed a button, and the editor disappeared through the trap-door. Alone again, Hector Strong thought keenly for a moment. Then he pressed bell 38. Instantly, a footman presented himself with a tray of sandwiches. "'What do you mean by this?' roared Strong, his iron self-control for a moment giving way. "'I b b beg your pardon, sir,' stammered the man. "'I th thought... Get out! As the footman retired, Strong passed his hand over his forehead. My memory is bad today, he murmured, and pushed bell 48. A tall, thin man entered. Ah, good afternoon, Mr. Brownlow, said the proprietor. 
he toyed with his blue pencil. "'Let me see which of our papers are under your charge at the moment.' Mr. Brownlow reflected. "'Just now,' he said, "'I am editing uh, Snippety Snips, The Hoop, The Girl's Own Aunt, Pairings, Slosh, The Sunday Sermon, and Backchat. "'Ah, well, I want you to take on sloppy chunks, too, for a little while. Mr. Sims has had to leave us.' "'Yes, sir.' Mr. Brownlow bowed and moved to the door. "'By the way,' Strong said, "'your last number of Slosh was very good, very good indeed. I congratulate you. Good day.' Left alone, Hector Strong, lord of journalism and swayer of empires, resumed his pacings. His two mistakes with the bell told him that he was distinctly not himself this afternoon— was it only the need of a new policy for the vein which troubled him? Or was it, could it be, Lady Dorothy? Lady Dorothy Neal was something of an enigma to Hector Strong. He was making more than a million pounds a year, and yet she did not want to marry him. Sometimes he wondered if the woman were quite sane. Yet, mad or sane, he loved her. A secretary knocked and entered. He waited submissively for half an hour until the proprietor looked up. Well? Lady Dorothy Neal would like to see you for a moment, sir. Show her in. Lady Dorothy came in brightly. What nice-looking men you have here, she said. Who is the one in the blue waistcoat? He has curly hair. You didn't come to talk about him, said Hector reproachfully. "'I didn't come to talk to him, really, but if you keep me waiting half an hour, why, what are you doing?' Strong looked up from the note he was writing. The tender lines had gone from his face, and he had become the stern man of action again. "'I am giving instructions that the services of my commissionaire, hallboy, and fifth secretary will no longer be required.' "'Don't do that,' pleaded Dorothy. Strong tore up the note and turned to her. "'What do you want of me?' he asked. She blushed and looked down. "'I... I have written a... a play,' she faltered. He smiled indulgently. He did not write plays himself, but he knew that other people did. "'When does it come off?' he asked. "'The manager says it will have to at the end of the week,' It came on a week ago. Well, he smiled, if people don't want to go, I can't make them. Yes, you can, she said boldly. He gave a start. His brain, working at lightning speed, saw the possibilities in an instant. At one stroke, he could win Lady Dorothy's gratitude, provide the daily vein with a temporary policy, and give a convincing exhibition of the power of his press. "'Oh, Mr. Strong!' "'Hector!' he whispered. As he rose from his desk to go to her, he accidentally pressed the button of the trapdoor. The next moment he was alone. That the British public is always ready to welcome the advent of a clean and wholesome homegrown play— is shown by the startling success of Christina's Mistake, 
which is attracting such crowds to the kings every night. So wrote the Daily Vane, and continued in the same strain for a column. Clubland is keenly exercised, wrote the Evening Vane, over a problem of etiquette which arises in the second act of Christina's Mistake, the great autumn success at the King's Theatre. The point is, shortly, this. Should a woman... and so on. A pretty little story is going the rounds, said Slosh. Anent that charming little lady, Estelle Rito, who plays the part of a governess in Christina's Mistake, for which, Manager Barodo informs me, advance booking up to Christmas has already been taken. It seems that Miss Rito, when shopping in the purlieus of Bond Street, Sloppy Chunks had a joke which set all the world laughing. It was called Between the Acts. Flossie, who's the lady in the box with Mr. Johnson? Gussie, hush, it's his wife. And Flossie giggled so much that she could hardly listen to the last act of Christina's Mistake, which she had been looking forward to for weeks. The Sunday sermon offered free tickets to a hundred unmarried suburban girls, to which class Christina's Mistake might be supposed to make a special religious appeal but they had to collect coupons first for the Sunday sermon. And finally, the Times, of two months later, said, A marriage has been arranged between Lady Dorothy Neal, daughter of the Earl of Skye, and the Honourable Geoffrey Bollinger. Than a successful revenge, nothing is sweeter in life. Hector Strong was not the man to spare anyone who had done him an injury. Yet I think his method of revenging himself upon Lady Dorothy savoured of the diabolical. He printed a photograph of her in the Daily Picture Gallery. It was headed, The Beautiful Lady Dorothy Neal. The Collector When Peter Plimsoll, the glue king, died, his parting advice to his sons to stick to the business was followed only by John, the elder. Adrian, the younger, had a soul above adhesion. He disposed of his share in the concern and settled down to follow the life of a gentleman of taste and culture and, more particularly, patron of the arts. He began in a modest way to collect ink pots. His range at first was Catholic, and it was not until he had acquired a hundred and forty-seven ink pots of various designs that he decided to make a specialty of historic ones. This decision was hastened by the discovery that one of Queen Elizabeth's inkstands, supposed by the owner to be the identical one with whose aid she wrote her last letter to Raleigh, was about to be put on the market. At some expense, Adrian obtained an introduction, through a third party, to the owner. At more expense, the owner obtained, through the same gentleman, an introduction to Adrian. And in less than a month, the great Elizabeth Inkpot was safely established in Adrian's house. It was the beginning of the Plimsoll collection. This was twenty years ago. 
let us to-day take a walk through the galleries of Mr. Adrian Plimsoll's charming residence, which, as the world knows, overlooks the park. Any friend of mine is always welcome at number 15. We will start with the North Gallery. I fear that I shall only have time to point out a few of the choicest gems. This is a Pontesiciori sword of the third century, the only example of the master's art without any notches. On the left is a Capricci comfit box. If you have never heard of Capricci, you oughtn't to come to a house like this. Here we have before us the Historia de Montini Topaz. Ask your little boy to tell you about it. In the East Gallery, of course, the chief treasure is the Santo di Santo amulet, described so minutely in his Vindicie Veritatis by John of Flanders. The original manuscript of this book is in the South Gallery. You must glance at it when we get there. It will save you the trouble of ordering a copy from your library. They would be sure to keep you waiting. With some such words as these, I led my friends round number 15. The many treasures in the private parts of the house I may not show, of course. The bathroom, for instance, in which hangs the finest collection of portraits of philatelists that Europe can boast, you must spend a night with Adrian to be admitted to their company, and as one of the elect I can assure you that nothing can be more stimulating on a winter's morning than to catch the eye of Frisbee Dranger, FPHS, behind the taps, as your head first emerges from the icy waters. Adrian Plimsoll sat at breakfast, sipping his hot water and crumbling a dry biscuit. A light was in his eye, a flush upon his pallid countenance. He had just heard from a trusty agent that the scutori breastplate had been seen in Devonshire. His car was ready to take him to the station, but, alas, a disappointment awaited him. On close examination, the breastplate turned out to be a common risoldo of inferior working. Adrian left the house in disgust and started on his seven-mile walk back to the station. To complete his misery, a sudden storm came on. Cursing alternately his agent and Risoldo, he made his way to a cottage and asked for shelter. An old woman greeted him civilly and bade him come in. "'If I may just wait till the storm is over,' said Adrian, and he sat down in her parlour and looked appraisingly, as was his habit, round the room. The grandfather clock in the corner was genuine, but he was beyond grandfather clocks. There was nothing else of any value, three china dogs and some odd trinkets on the chimney-piece, a print or two. Stay, what was that behind the youngest dog? May I look at that old bracelet? he asked, his voice trembling a little, and without waiting for permission, he walked over and took up the circle of tarnished metal in his hands. As he examined it, his color came and went. His heart seemed to stop beating. With a tremendous effort, he composed himself and returned to his chair. It was the Emperor's bracelet. Of course, you know the history of this most famous of all bracelets— made by Spurius Quintus of Rome in 47 B.C., 
It was given by Caesar to Cleopatra, who tried without success to dissolve it in vinegar. Returning to Rome by way of Antony, it was worn at a minor conflagration by Nero, after which it was lost sight of for many centuries. It was eventually heard of during the reign of Canute, or Knut, as his admirers called him, and John is known to have lost it in the wash, whence it was recovered a century afterwards. It must have travelled thence to France, for it was seen once in the possession of Louis XI, and from there to Spain, for Philip the Handsome presented it to Joanna on her wedding day. Columbus took it to America, but fortunately brought it back again. Peter the Great threw it at an indifferent musician. On one of its later visits to England, Pope wrote a couplet to it. And the most astonishing thing in its whole history was that now, for more than a hundred years, it had vanished completely, to turn up again in a little Devonshire cottage. Verily, truth is stranger than fiction. "'That's rather a curious bracelet of yours,' said Adrian, casually. "'My, er, wife has one just like it, which she asked me to match. "'Is it an old friend, or would you care to sell it?' "'My mother gave it to me,' said the old woman, "'and she had it from hers. "'I don't know no further than that. "'I didn't mean to sell it, but—' "'Quite right,' said Adrian.' "'And, after all, I can easily get another one. "'But I won't say a bit of money wouldn't be useful. "'What would you think a fair price, sir? Five shillings?' "'Adrian's heart jumped. "'To get the Emperor's bracelet for five shillings! "'But the spirit of the collector rose up strong within him. "'He laughed kindly. "'My good woman,' he said, they turn out bracelets like that in Birmingham at two shillings apiece, and quite new. I'll give you tenpence. Make it one and sixpence, she pleaded. Times are hard. Adrian reflected. He was not, strictly speaking, impoverished. He could afford one and sixpence. One and tuppence, he said. No, no, one and sixpence, she repeated obstinately. Adrian reflected again. After all, he could always sell it for ten thousand pounds if the worst came to the worst. Well, well, he sighed. One and sixpence let it be. He counted out the money carefully. Then, putting the precious bracelet in his pocket, he rose to go. Adrian has no relations living now. When he dies, he proposes to leave the Plimsoll collection to the nation, having, as far as he can foresee, no particular use for it in the next world. This is really very generous of him, and no doubt when the time comes the papers will say so. But it is a pity that he cannot be appreciated properly in his lifetime. Personally, I should like to see him knighted. THE ADVENTURER Lionel Norwood, from his earliest days, had been marked out for a life of crime. When quite a child, he was discovered by his nurse killing flies on the windowpane. This was before the character of the housefly had become a matter of common talk among scientists, and Lionel, like all great men, a little before his time, 
had pleaded hygiene in vain. He was smacked hastily and bundled off to a preparatory school, where his aptitude for smuggling sweets would have lost him many a half-holiday, had not his services been required at outside left in the hockey eleven. With some difficulty, he managed to pass into Eton, and three years later, with, one would imagine, still more difficulty, managed to get superannuated. At Cambridge, he went downhill rapidly. He would think nothing of smoking a cigar in academical costume, and on at least one occasion he drove a dog-cart on Sunday. No wonder that he was requested, early in his second year, to give up his struggle with the little go and betake himself back to London. London is always glad to welcome such people as Lionel Norwood. In no other city is it so simple for a man of easy conscience to earn a living by his wits. If Lionel ever had any scruples, which, after a perusal of the above account of his early days, it may be permitted one to doubt, they were removed by an accident to his solicitor, who was run over in the Argentine on the very day that he arrived there with what was left of Lionel's money. Reduced suddenly to poverty, Norwood had no choice but to enter upon a life of crime, except, perhaps, that he used slightly less hair-oil than most, he seemed just the ordinary man about town, as he sat in his dressing-gown one fine summer morning and smoked a cigarette. His rooms were furnished quietly and in the best of taste. No signs of his nefarious profession showed themselves to the casual visitor. The appealing letters from the princess, whom he was blackmailing, the wire apparatus, which shot the two of spades down his sleeve during the coon-can nights at the club, the thimble and pea with which she had performed the three-card trick so successfully at Epsom last week, all these were hidden away from the common gaze. It was a young gentleman of fashion who lounged in his chair and toyed with a priceless straight cut. There was a tap at the door, and Masters, his confidential valet, came in. Well, said Lionel, have you looked through the post? Yes, sir, said that man. There's the usual check from Her Highness, a request for more time from the lady in Tight Street with tuppence to pay on the envelope, and banknotes from the professor as expected. The young gentleman of Hill Street has gone abroad suddenly, sir. Ah, said Lionel with a sudden frown. I suppose you'd better cross him off our list, Masters. Yes, sir, I had ventured to do so, sir. I think that's all, except that Mr. Snooks is glad to accept your kind invitation to dinner and bridge to-night. Will you wear the hair-spring coat, sir, or the metal clip? Lionel made no answer. He sat plunged in thought. When he spoke, it was about another matter. Masters, he said, I have found out Lord Fairley's secret at last. I shall go to see him this afternoon. Yes, sir. Will you wear your revolver, sir, as it's a first call? I think so. If this comes off, Masters, it will make our fortune. I hope so, I'm sure, sir. Masters placed the whiskey within reach and left the room silently. Alone, Lionel picked up his paper and turned to the agony column. 
As everybody knows, the agony column of a daily paper is not actually so domestic as it seems. When mother apparently says to floss, Come at home once, father gone away for week, Bert and Sid longing to see you. What is really happening is that Barney Hoker is telling Judd Batson to meet him outside the Duke of Westminster's little place at 3 a.m. precisely on Tuesday morning, not forgetting to bring his jemmy and a dark lantern with him. And Floss's announcement next day, coming home with George, is Judd's way of saying that he will turn up all right, and half thinks of bringing his automatic pistol with him, too, in case of accidents. In this language, which, of course, takes some little learning, Lionel Norwood had long been an expert. The advertisement which he was now reading was unusually elaborate. Lost, in a taxi between Baker Street and Shepherd's Bush, a gold-mounted umbrella with initials J.P. on it. If Ellen will return to her father immediately, all will be forgiven. White spot on foreleg. Mother very anxious and desires to return thanks for kind enquiries. Answers to the name of Ponto. Bis.quisito. What did it mean? For Lionel, it had no secrets. He was reading the revelation by one of his agents of the skeleton in Lord Fairley's cupboard. Lord Fairley was one of the most distinguished members of the cabinet. His vein of high seriousness, his lofty demeanor, the sincerity of his manner endeared him not only to his party, but even, astounding as it may seem, to a few high-minded men upon the other side, who admitted in moments of expansion which they probably regretted afterwards, that he might, after all, be as devoted to his country as they were. For years now his life had been without blemish. It was impossible to believe that even in his youth he could have sown any wild oats. Terrible to think that these wild oats might now be coming home to roost. "'What do you require of me?' he said courteously to Lionel as the latter was shown into his study. Lionel went to the point at once. "'I am here, my lord,' he said, "'on business. In the course of my ordinary avocations,' the parliamentary atmosphere seemed to be affecting his language, "'I ascertained a certain secret in your past life, which, if it were revealed, might conceivably have a not undamaging effect upon your career.' For my silence in this matter, I must demand a sum of fifty thousand pounds. Lord Fairley had grown paler and paler as this speech proceeded. What have you discovered? he whispered. Alas, he knew only too well what the damning answer would be. Twenty years ago, said Lionel, you wrote a humorous book. Lord Fairley gave a strangled cry. His keen mind recognized in a flash what a hold this knowledge would give his enemies. Shafts of Folly, his book had been called. Already he saw the leading articles of the future. We confess ourselves somewhat at a loss to know whether Lord Fairley's speech at Plymouth yesterday 
was intended as a supplement to his earlier work, Shafts of Folly, or as a serious offering to a nation impatient of levity in such a crisis. The cabinet's jester, in whom twenty years ago the country lost an excellent clown without gaining a statesman, was in great form last night. Lord Fairley has amused us in the past with his clever little parodies. He may amuse us in the future, but as a statesman we can only view him with disgust. Well, said Lionel at last, I think your lordship is wise enough to understand. The discovery of a sense of humor in a man of your eminence? But Lord Fairley was already writing out the check. The Explorer As the evening wore on, and one young man after another asked Jocelyn Montrever if she were going to Ascot what, or to Henley what, or what, she wondered more and more if this were all that life would ever hold for her. Would she never meet a man, a real man, who had done something? These boys around her were very pleasant, she admitted to herself, very useful, indeed, she added, as one approached her with some refreshments, but they were only boys. Here you are, said Freddy, handing her an ice in three colors. I've had it made specially cold for you. They only had the green, pink, and yellow jerseys left. I hope you don't mind. The green part is arsenic, I believe. If you don't want the wafer, I'll take it home and put it between the sashes of my bedroom window. The rattling kept me awake last night. That's why I'm looking so ill, by the way. Jocelyn smiled kindly and went on with her ice. That reminds me, Freddy went on, we've got a nut here tonight, the genuine thing. None of your society Barcelonas or suburban filberts. One of the real Cobb family. The driving from the sixth tee, inset on the right, and New Year's message to the country touch. In short, a celebrity. Who? asked Jocelyn eagerly. Perhaps here was a man. Worrell Bryce, the explorer. Don't say you haven't heard of him or Aunt Alice will cry. Heard of him? Of course she had heard of him. Who hadn't? Worrell Bryce's adventures in distant parts of the empire would have filled a book. Had, in fact, already filled three. A glance at his flat in St. James's Street gave you some idea of the adventures he had been through. Here were the polished spurs of his companion in the famous ride through Australia from north to south, all that had been left by the cannibals of the Wagga Wagga River after their banquet. Here was the poisoned arrow, which, by the merciful intervention of Providence, just missed Worrell and pierced the heart of one of his black attendants, the post-mortem happily revealing the presence of a new and interesting poison. Here, again, was the rope with which he was hanged by mistake as a spy in South America, a mistake which would certainly have had fatal results if he had not had the presence of mind to hold his breath during the performance. In yet another corner you might see his favorite mascot, a tooth of the shark which bit him off the coast of China. Spears, knives, and guns lined the walls. Every inch of the floor was covered by skins. His flat was typical of the man, a man 
who had done things. Introduce him to me, commanded Jocelyn. Where is he? She looked up suddenly and saw him entering the ballroom. He was of commanding height, and his face was the face of a man who has been exposed to the forces of nature. The wind, the waves, the sun, the mosquito had set their mark upon him. Down one side of his cheek was a newly healed scar, a scratch from a hippopotamus in its last death struggle, a legacy from a bison seared his brow. He walked with the soft, easy tread of the python, or the pathan, or some animal with a pfft in it. Probably, I mean the panther. He bore himself confidently, and his mouth was a trap from which no superfluous word ever escaped. He was the strong, silent man of Jocelyn's dreams. Mr. Worrell Bryce, Miss Montrevor, said Freddy, and left them. Worrell Bryce bowed and stood beside her with folded arms, his gaze fixed above her head. "'I shall not expect you to dance,' said Jocelyn, with a confidential smile, which implied that he and she were above such frivolities. As a matter of fact, he could have taught her the Wagga Wagga one-step, the Bimbo, the Kiyi, the Jubu and the Headhunter's Hug, and many other cannibalistic steps— which, later on, were to become the rage of London and the basis of a review. "'I have often imagined you as you kept watch over your camp,' she went on, "'and I have seemed myself to hear the savages and lions roaring out of the circle of fire, what time in the swamps the crocodiles were barking.' "'Yes,' he said. "'It must be a wonderful life.' "'Yes.' If I were a man, I should want to lead such a life, to get away from all this. And she waved her hand round the room. Back to nature. To know that I could not eat until I had first killed my dinner. That I could not live unless I slew the enemy. That must be fine. Yes, said Worrell. I cannot get Freddy to see it. He is quite content to have shot a few grouse, and once to have wounded a beater. There must be more in life than that. Yes. I suppose I am elemental. Beneath the veneer of civilization, I am a savage. To wake up with the war cry of the enemy in my ears. To sleep with the, er, barking of the crocodile in my dreams. That is life. Worrell Bryce tugged at his mustache and gazed into space over her head. Then he spoke. "'Crocodiles don't bark,' he said. Jocelyn looked at him in astonishment. "'But in your book, Through Trackless Paths,' she cried, "'I know it almost by heart. It was you who taught me. What are the beautiful words? On the banks of the sleepy river two great crocodiles were barking?' "'Not barking,' said Worrell, basking. It was a misprint.' "'Oh!' said Jocelyn. She had a moment's awful memory of all the occasions when she had insisted that crocodiles barked. There had been a particularly fierce argument with Meta Richards, who had refused to weigh even the printed word of Worrell Bryce against the silence of the reptile house on her last visit to the zoo. 
"'Well,' smiled Jocelyn, "'you must teach me about these things. "'Will you come and see me?' "'Yes,' said Worrell. "'He rather liked to stand and gaze into the distance "'while pretty women talked to him, "'and Jocelyn was very pretty. "'We live in South Kensington. "'Come on Sunday, won't you? "'99 Peel Crescent.' "'Yes,' said Worrell. "'On Sunday, Jocelyn waited eagerly for him "'in the drawing-room of Peel Crescent. "'Her father was asleep in the library. "'Her mother was dead. "'So she would have the great man to herself for an afternoon. "'Later she would have him for always, "'for she meant to marry him. "'And when they were married, "'she was not so sure that they would live "'with the noise of the crocodile barking or coughing "'or whatever it did in their ears.' She saw herself in that little house in Green Street, with the noise of motor-horns and taxi-whistles to soothe her to sleep. Yet what a man he was! What had he said to her? She went over all his words. They were not many. At six o'clock she was still waiting in the drawing-room at Peel Crescent. At six-thirty, Worrell Bryce had got as far as Peel Place. At 6.45 he found himself in Radcliffe Square again. At 7 o'clock, just as he was giving himself up for lost, he met a taxi and returned to St. James's Street. He was a great traveller, but South Kensington had been too much for him. Next week he went back, unmarried, to the jungle. It was the narrowest escape he had had. End of section 16. Recording by Kirsten Weber. End of Once a Week by A. A. Milne.